Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hello and welcome to the Mostly Books Meets podcast. In the podcast this week, I'm speaking to international best-selling author Ben Meserich. In 2003, he released Bringing Down the House, the inside story of six MIT students who took Vegas for millions, which spent a whopping 63 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and went on to be adapted into the 2008 film 21. In 2009 came The Accidental Billionaires, which explored the founding of the now highly influential social media giant Facebook, which spent 18 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and was later adapted into the Oscar-winning film The Social Network. His latest book, The Anti-Social Network, was published this month and tells the David versus Goliath story of the GameStop short squeeze, which caught the attention of the public this year and left the powers that be on Wall Street shaking. Ben, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Mostly Books Meets podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure, absolutely. So to start us off, I'd like to go back to your past and your childhood. Am I right in saying you're a Boston native? Is that correct? I've been in Boston for a very long time. I wasn't born there, Ah, but I'm pretty much a Boston native. Okay, okay. (laughs) Wikipedia says I was born there. (laughs) Okay, wonderful. And so what was your childhood like? So I definitely was obsessed with television to the point that my parents made a rule when we were little that we had to read two books a week before we were allowed to watch TV. So I became a reader very early in life because my parents were afraid of how much television I was watching. Um, So I became obsessed with books, you know, by the age of 10 or 11. So I also became a speed reader because I could finish two books and then I could watch whatever TV I wanted. So I was a speed reader from a very early age for all the wrong reasons. But yeah, I was definitely... One of those kids who always had his head in a book after about age 10. Do you feel that's influenced you at all? Because I've seen in other interviews, you've talked about when you're writing your books, there's almost a cinematic element to that. Do you see a close relationship between TV and books for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I've always seen myself as a cinematic writer. I've always tried to write as if I'm watching it. I'm very visual in everything that I do and the way I think. So yeah, I definitely grew up with my head in a television set. And so, you know, when I write books, I'm always thinking movie or what it's going to look like on the screen. And I've always been that way. Yeah. Wonderful. Is there a first book that you remember reading or at least had an influence on you at a young age? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple points in my life where books have had major influences on my life. When I was a little kid, I remember I found a book. It was called The Electric Book. I don't even know where it was. It was basically about a writer who was writing And everything he was writing was coming true. And it was like a kid's book. And I think that was formative in a weird way. But later in my life, discovering Michael Crichton and Jurassic Park was a really big moment for me because I wanted to be him. But then later in my life, the important book was Bright Lights, Big City, Jay McInerney. That's the author I wanted to be. 
after I went through Michael Crichton and then I got to that and I was like, well, that's cool. And so those were kind of integral moments, I think, in books for me. How did you discover that book? Was reading in your home, was it after going to a bookstore? Was it from a library or was there a lot of lending books happening sort yeah. of between family members or? Yeah, so my family, you know, because my, my dad passed this rule that at the time seemed very draconic that we had to read two books a week, we would yeah. go to the library as a family every week, pick out our books, then read them and then have to take a test. My dad would sit down with us and make <laughs> wow. sure we had actually read these books. So this was like serious business in our house. So from a very early age, I was reading everything. I mean, I would mm. pick up and he counted everything. So you could read science fiction, you could read, okay. you know, whatever, uh, The Hobbit, whatever, any book you picked up counted as a book. But, um, but you had to read two of them before you could watch TV. So I, we would go every week to the library. The library was a big part of my life. And then Later on, it became bookstores. I, I love bookstores. I would walk into bookstores every city I was in, everywhere I would go and pick them up. And, you know, it was pretty much my life with books. My room was filled with books. My whole world was filled with books. So by the time I was 12 or 13, I knew I wanted to be a writer. So it started very early for me. It was pretty much that was the only thing I ever wanted to do. The testing of whether you've read those books or not must have instilled from quite an early age a close reading you know you couldn't just yeah skim through and because i'm guilty for you know there's plenty of books i read and i think oh actually how much is sinking in but you know from from the get-go right. you were really sort of focusing on those details yeah i mean you learn these reading comprehension skills very early when yeah. when you're being tested i knew what i needed to know i knew i needed I couldn't just read the, you know, the first page of each chapter. I wasn't going to get through it that way. I had to actually know what was happening in the book. But yeah, I mean, I really gravitated towards books that were very like science fiction was really where I started. I was reading so much science fiction, all of the Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, everything I could get my hands on. And then I shifted a little bit into sort of the techno thrillers and the medical thrillers and things like that as I got a little older. It's interesting. I didn't discover nonfiction, which is what I'm known for, mm. until much later in life. I discovered nonfiction with Hunter S. Thompson, which was its own type of brand of nonfiction, I guess, the whole gonzo thing. But I didn't really get into that until college, I would say. So really, as a kid and as a high school kid, it was thrillers, it was sci-fi, and then it was Brady Snellis, J. McInerney, and the whole New York style of writing. But yeah, I was quizzed along the way. So oh, yeah. I got very good at reading comprehension. And I think I've heard you say somewhere that you've always just aimed to tell, you know, a super engaging story. And that nonfiction has happened to be the thing you're most known for was happenstance, really, that actually, you've just always aimed to tell a great story. And it just happens to be that some of those are true. Exactly right. I never set out to be a journalist or a nonfiction writer. I fell into it accidentally. I was writing fiction thrillers, and then I ran into this group of college kids that were going to and from Las Vegas and had won millions of dollars playing blackjack. And I fell in with this crowd and started going to Vegas with them every weekend. And that became my first successful book, which was Bringing Down the House or Breaking yeah. Vegas, I think it was called in, in other countries, about you know the MIT kids who took Vegas. So I fell into it and suddenly I was known for nonfiction but it was never my intention <laughs> to be a, a, a true writer, you know, to be a nonfiction writer. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. A thing I've noticed as well with your nonfiction books is there is, and I say this completely as a, you know, a layman in all things, you know, financial really, but that there is an ongoing theme of the 
David V. Goliath, you know, sort of, or a, a new person in the scene shaking things up or gaming the system in some way. Has there always been an interest there in the financial world and power there? Or Yeah, I mean, the, the themes that I gravitate towards have always been David versus Goliath or, or young people taking on the system, finding a way to beat some institution that's supposed to be unbeatable, people using their brains or, or, or their intelligence mm. to sort of to win one over against things that are supposed to be unbeatable. So people taking on casinos, people taking on Wall Street, those have always been the themes that have turned me on. And also that gray area between right and wrong, people who aren't good with authority. Yeah, I've always loved that. And the key to me, though, is it's not criminals. You know, I don't usually write crime stories. I'm not a true crime writer. It's more people who come up with a really smart way to do something that we all wish we could do. So yeah, yeah that's definitely themes that I'm drawn to. And what I really like about that as well is I wonder if that reflects in some ways, you know, on some childhood reading somewhere, because that classic David V. Goliath, the little guy, as it were, going against the system, where, as you said, doing these sort of wonderful, intelligent things. That's a theme at all ages of reading, whether from early sort of picture books for children all up to adults. You know, that's one of the classic stories of of all time, really. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it does go back to sort of also me personally being a geeky, nerdy kid at home, wanting to figure <laughs> out ways to win uh, and never yeah. not being great at sports and all that. Kind of stuff. So you love reading stories where where the little guy, you know, takes on the world and wins. Yes, it's definitely a theme you see throughout all books, I guess, from kids all the way up. But when it happens in real life, it's just so compelling because it doesn't usually work that way. You know, usually Goliath wins. <laughs> Goliath yeah. stamps out David nine out of ten times. And so it's interesting when once in a while somebody wins. So yeah, I love getting into those stories. Fast forward to today, what's life like for Ben Meserich, the international best selling author? I mean, life is pretty fun. You know, the pandemic was a strange yeah. twist, I think, for everybody in the world. And as an author, it was double-edged in that, you know, being locked in a house for 15 months means I wrote more than I've ever written in my life. <laughs> I've been writing nonstop. And, you know, it's been a good time in terms of content because we've all burned through so much. All of the Hollywood streamers are looking for stuff. Movie studios are looking yeah. for stuff. We've watched so much television and read so many books that... It's actually a good time to be making content. It's been great. It's been a wild career. I found some really great stories and I found myself in the center of a lot of them. I've got a lot of movies in development now, a couple of TV shows and a few books. So it's been a very productive period for me. I have the new book out, another book coming out in the spring. And then I've been working on the show Billions on Showtime as a writer producer. And then I have, I guess, two movies in development and a couple TV shows in development. So wow. it's been crazy. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty bizarre time, I think, for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, being on book tour during a pandemic is, is unusual yeah. uh, because it's mostly in your room doing this and you have no idea what's happening out there with your book and you don't walk into bookstores as much. So it's easier, but it's less fun, I think. So we'll see what happens. Yes. But Normally, I'd be on a plane right now visiting a dozen cities to hawk the book. And instead, yeah. you're sitting in Vermont in, in a basement. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's not the, the same, it is it? No, it's not. And researching the book in this environment was different, too. Normally, my research is very, I go out there and I be a part of the story. I get to know the people mm. and go to all the places. And instead, it was conducted differently. But, you know, then again, the stories take place that way, too, now. So it's interesting. It's interesting. 
that's interesting. The method of researching the book ends up sort of reflecting the story it's telling in the sense that it's these people in their, yeah. you know, in their little bubbles connecting with each other. That's really interesting, actually, that that's how it's ended up. Yeah, I mean, the antisocial network, when you read the book, you'll see everyone, it's, it's almost a bunch of different thrillers all connected together because everyone's having their own adventure. And yeah. I think that's what happened with the pandemic. Everyone's the hero of their own little movie right now, and the movies aren't intersecting necessarily. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly how I had to research it, was each individual character was its own story. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's an interesting time. I think everything's softening now and we're all starting to get back together yeah. and figuring out how to navigate that. But um, it was wild to be able to reflect it with my work, writing something of the moment. You know, normally I, I write a book a year after the events have happened yeah. or a couple of years after. This was the first time I've written a book while it was happening. So it was pretty wild. It was a different experience for sure. Yeah, that must have been, you know, when we first heard that the book was coming out, I was thinking, oh, you know, that's really... It's great to see, you know, a book responding to this, you know, when it was, I am right in saying it, it was early this year that these events were going on. And did you sort of know the moment when this started happening? Because, you know, it really did, I think, capture everyone's imagination. You know, it was people who would never, you know, my mother mentioned it. It's just stuff that would usually not be in her frame of reference. So is that what grabbed you? Yeah, so I was watching, you know, I've always been a gambler. I've always been interested in the stock market. And I've been a fan of GameStop forever. I think it's a ridiculous company. Um, but I've wandered <laughs> into those stores a million times. And uh, I, I love video games. I mean, you know, it's just nostalgic. It probably shouldn't exist anymore. But <laughs> I was there all the time. And, and so when it exploded in January, I was watching it happen. I was trying to decide if I should buy the stock because it was, it was flying. And then I start getting phone calls. People on Twitter are coming to me saying, you should be writing about this. It's the stuff that you write about. And I started hanging out on the Reddit boards and, and looking at all these characters. And I was like, yeah, these are these are my people. <laughs> and yeah. So I did. I, I started interviewing everybody. And by the end of the week, I'd sold the movie in this big movie deal. And so I sold the movie off of just a 10 page, 14 page proposal. Then I sold the book. So I was actually writing this book while the events were still unfolding with this large Hollywood movie being developed around it. So it was wild. It was really like kind of an insane, you know, thing where, you know, you're trying to get all the characters to talk to you while they're being investigated by the SEC <laughs> while, yes. while, you know, you yeah. have a screenwriter trying to write this play. It's, it's a different beast, but it all came together really well. In amongst this, what sounds like an incredibly busy schedule, I mean, so many things to keep spinning in the air. You know, do you have time for reading these days? Is it something that is still a, a large part of your life? Yeah, I read all the time. I'm reading, I read, you know, mornings, nights. I'm, I've always got a book right. open. It's funny, during this period, I got really into reading biographies of rock stars, of people in like these weird liminal lives. I just read the Keith Richards biography, which okay, yeah. I had not read, you know, when it came out and really loved it. I thought, fantastic. I love these larger than life characters who live a life that I could never have lived, that probably should have died <laughs> multiple times. Yeah. Um, but the, I highly recommend Similarly, I read Slash, the guitarist from uh, Guns N' Roses biography. Uh, yeah. I don't know how I got into this rock and roll kick. So I was reading all these rock biographies. And then I also read a lot of Brandon Sanderson. He's a, a fantasy writer, I guess. And he's got really phenomenal, I think, books that I got into. And then a lot of people send me, you know, things to blurb. So there's been things that have passed okay. through, but I'm trying to remember if any of them were for something I'd read recently. But 
Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I think I'm reading Seth Rogen's biography now. I don't know what it is. There's something about these biographies that I find easy reading that you can sort of read while you're having lunch. Yeah, it's entertaining. They're very entertaining. So that's what I've been reading right now. I can imagine. Uh, Nothing super literary, but those are the books I'm reading right now. Yeah, I can imagine the particularly the Keith Richards one. There's going to be a lot of entertaining information. Unbelievable. Everyone around him dies. Uh, and yet he's still standing and yeah. he's doing more than everyone around him. You, just, you can't imagine someone living like that. And then all the stuff between him and Mick Jagger is fascinating. You know, the mm. interplay between these two people um, who are clearly geniuses, but really strange relationship that that is just uh, it's a really well written book, I think. Yeah. And do you, in terms of this current interest in, I suppose, you know, celebrity biographies, obviously there's the Brendan Sanderson as well, which is, you know, the outlier there. You know, because most of the people you've mentioned, they found themselves, you know, in the public eye from some great talent of theirs or being an entertainer in some way. And again, that sort of keys into that sort of key interest of, you know, these extraordinary people. Yeah. I mean, the larger than life character, the against all odds kind of stories, you know, they're they're one in a million, these people. And you you don't hear the stories of the 999,000 other people who all fail trying to do the same thing they're doing. So, yeah, I I do get really turned on by these unique stories of perseverance and being on the edge and like being willing to buck authority in ways that, you know, could get very dramatic. It's awesome. In my own life, I would never be like that. You know, it's just the I know that it's so impossible to me to think of how you just do that. But at the same time, as an author, you do take a lot of risks with your life because you go through periods in your career where no one's paying you anything. And, you know, you're sitting around wondering where you're going to get money from. But I do gravitate to these stories. And it's fascinating. I I think the world is full of, of interesting characters, but certain ones just rise up and you want to know how they did it and what makes them tick. Yeah. I might, if you don't mind, go back to the Brandon Sanderson. If you were to recommend that to the listeners, what yeah. would you say to get people reading that series? Yeah, so Brandon Sanderson has a spectacular series of books. Is it called The Wheel of Time? I think I can't remember. Mm, yeah. But each book is thousands of pages long. So there, it's like Game of Thrones, except for way beyond anything that I think you can conceptualize. It's I, I yeah. think they're really well written. They involve fantasy elements that you're kind of familiar with, but it, it paints an entire world from scratch. I'm really in awe of authors who can start from nothing and build an entire world with characters and a science of its own and magic of its own. And and it all works together. And he seamlessly connects dozens of characters, which, you know, when I write a book, it's three or four characters, right? But Brandon Sanderson is able to hold many, many characters over thousands of pages. So I highly recommend the whole series. You know, I haven't read through it all yet. I think I'm three or four books into it, but um, it's really good stuff. And it's somewhere between fantasy and science fiction. I guess it's considered fantasy. I, I don't know what that, but I did get turned on to all this. I loved Game of Thrones. I think Game of Thrones is phenomenally well-written books and a great series on HBO. And and so from there, I kind of was reading a lot of different things in the similar genre to find mm. something, uh, you know, as wholly built as that. So yeah, I recommend those books. I think it's always great when you get into a series where the world building is just, you know, out of this world, but at a level where you think, where does this begin? Where do you start? Do you start with the building? Like, you know, where right. do you build out from? Right. I mean, there's been so much legwork and there's been so much research 
And, you know, you just picture the author sitting there in a room with charts and maps, and yeah. <laughs> like how, how they built this whole universe out of nothing. Yeah, it's cool. When you're doing the research into any of your books, do you use visual aids? Because I can imagine there's a lot of, you know, particularly in the current book where you've got all these different characters, which, as you say, are in their own worlds and are sort of they're each a protagonist. I can imagine there's a lot of dots to be joining up there. Yeah, I'm very structured in the way I research and the way I write. So with each character, when I start, I interview each character as much as I can, and I get pages and pages and pages of their story. Mm. And so I've got, you know, Keith Gill's story, I've got the, you know, Melvin Capital story, I've got the Citadel story, and they're kind of separated into piles of stories. I don't usually use like note cards and things like that. When I write for television, you use note cards a lot. Yeah. For writing the books that I write, it's more like just sheets of paper. I do very strict outlines. I, I outline everything to the point where I know how many pages are in each chapter. And I don't even miss ever miss by a page. So I've got an entire chapter outline of the book before I start, broken into three acts, with every chapter being a page number where it starts and a page number where it ends. So the hardest work I do is with my outlines, okay. so that when I start writing the book, I'm just following this spine. So yes, I do try to separate out the characters and get to know their lives as much as I can through interviewing, through talking to people around them, through document research and stuff like that. So yeah, it's it's pretty research intensive, mm. you know, style of writing. And I suppose having that strict structure in place also really does help because I can imagine you could just keep going. Yeah. See, I write a book in three months or before that. And this book was probably eight weeks. Wow. So to do that, you have to know exactly what you're going to write before you sit down to write. Yeah. Once I start the writing process, I'm writing 10 pages every day. I'm literally, you know, zooming along at an incredible pace because I've done all of the research, all of the structuring beforehand. Yeah. I start each day and I know what chapter I'm doing that day. And I know everything that takes place in that chapter. And that enables me to sort of move quickly through the story and get all the beats down. So yeah, it's a process I've developed over 20 books at this point. Yeah. But you know, I'm pretty much a machine in terms of my writing, <laughs> where I once I have the concept of the story down, you know, there's the synopsis, 14 pages, there's the outline, which usually is, you know, 20 to 40 pages. And then there's the book, which is 300 to 400 pages. And those steps happen in a very set amount of time. And you know, three months later, I have a book. And I'm capable of doing that over and over again. So it's it's insane, but it, it's the way I've always written. Yeah, I can imagine now there's going to be some authors out there hearing that discipline and do it in that structure and time frame, and they're just absolutely shaking. It. Right. Every writer is different, and I and, I, and I, sometimes I teach younger writer. You know, I go to schools and speak, and I'm like, not everyone should attempt this. There are writers who just sit and they write. You know, and yeah. they they go where it takes them, and then they edit it and they edit it. But I've always looked at this as a career and I've always said, I'm not writing one book. I'm going to write a hundred books. And my goal is to figure out how I can tell my stories and do it, you know, in a process almost. And so, yeah, I think this works very well for me, but it's certainly not for everyone. No. You can't have any self-doubt. Let's put it that way. It's, 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 you have to have almost a delusional level of belief <laughs> in your ability to get from here to there because, yeah. you know, if you let anything else in, you can get stalled, right? The problem with writing is it's just impossible. <laughs> so you, yeah. you're looking at a blank page and you're like, well, how does the story get down onto this page, right? And if you really think it through, you freeze. So the key to me is to get out of your head, to be completely delusional, to like, like all right, this is what happened next. And, and you write it and don't think about it until you've written it. So the process allows me to take myself out of it. I'm just part of this machine. 
that's telling this story. Yeah. And I must say, it's very refreshing to hear as well that you're quite firm in terms of seeing this as a career as well. I think, you know, understandably, because as you said, everyone's different. But most authors, it's for a career. You know, maybe some of them are lucky that it's just, you know, a sort of a, a hobby that's got out of hand. But it it is a career. And I think right. it's nice to hear that verbalised because I don't think it is that often. It's treated as this sort of magical thing. But actually, right. you know, hard. this, is, this yeah. is people's bread and butter. Yeah. When I graduated from college, my parents were not happy that I said I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> and they said to me, listen, I'm going to give you one year. We're not going to let you starve but you have to have some level of proof that this is going to happen by the end of the year. Yeah. So I literally wrote nine novels that year. I locked myself in an apartment and I wrote nine you know, times 400 pages, if you can imagine. In one year, I wrote my rejection, 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 got 190 rejection slips. I was getting a dozen rejections a week. Yeah. And back then it was pre-internet, so you would send things by the mail and you would get a rejection back in the mail. But I needed to prove that I could do this. So yeah. it was like a trial by fire. And by the end of the year, I had an agent. And that didn't stop me. And then over the next year, I wrote a few books. And I, and I literally was writing multiple books at a time. Because to me, the goal was really, I want to be a writer. I want to make money. I want to yeah. succeed as a writer. I want to be Michael Crichton. I want to be the guy yeah. who has the number one book and the number one movie and the number one television show. And I believe there is art to it. And I understand the whole literary process. But my opinion was, you can do art for yourself, but if you want to do art as a career, you have to be driven into in that direction. You have mm. to say, okay, this is all I'm going to do, and I'm going to find the pathway to make this my livelihood. So that's really how I set out to do it. And so, you know, from the very beginning, I've always seen this as somewhat a commercial enterprise, as, yeah. as a way of telling a story to as many people as I can, to making it as big a platform as it can be with a movie, a television show, a book, but to do it in a way that, that I can continue to do it as the only thing that I do. <laughs> so yeah, I was very directed from the very beginning. And thankfully, it worked out, but it was quite a process. Amazing. I'm going to go on a slightly different angle now. So I'm going to ask you the rather big question. Can you tell us about or can you think of a book that changed your life? I can think of a dozen books that changed my <laughs> life. <laughs> let me let me let me try and isolate it down to one. Um, the Sun Also Rises was a really important book to me by Hemingway that I actually read on the first of every month for many years. So the first of every month, I would literally take that book and read it. And I would actually, when I became in my 20s, I went to Paris and I would try and drink at every spot that the character drinks at. And was I was quite a drunk in my 20s. And, uh, <laughs> and that book spoke to me in so many ways. I thought it was the ability to tell a story in a, a short space mm. with not many words, every sentence, tells you something yeah. without many words. It's an amazing book, I think. And that book and Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, I think have similarities in a lot of interesting ways. Michael Crichton was also fantastic at using very few words to get you all you needed to know, which I think is an incredible talent to have. Mm. And then I'll go back to Bright Lights, Big City. So I really, really wanted to be Jay McInerney. I wanted to be running around bars in New York, hanging out at that nightlife. I wanted to be that celebrity author that doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, there, yeah, there yeah. was that moment in the 80s where there was Jay McInerney, Brady Snellis, hanging around in bars in New York. And I read that book and I was like, this is so explosive. And it's written in the second person present tense, right? Yeah. You are doing that. That's how it was yeah, written. Yeah. Wild to me. It blew my mind. 
And then Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah. Really spectacular written nonfiction book. So I would put all those books. I know I didn't choose just one. No, 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 that's if I right. had to choose one, it would be The Sun Also Rises because that was the one that I. Yeah. But um, but Ray Sinellis and then uh, Crichton, uh, Jay McInerney and Hunter S. Thompson, all of them together, I think, is what I attempted to make myself. And with my own voice, obviously, but I think each one was so groundbreaking in its own way. And yeah, that solidified me on this path to becoming a writer. There's nothing like a writer in his full ability. And when you read Bright Lights, Big City, everything that went into that book is just, it's magical. It's spectacular. It was also a huge commercial success. And it was also something that everyone picked up and it was a big middle finger to the way writing was supposed to work, right? Um, and, And I think that that's really cool. Yeah. And then you can look at Hunter S. Thompson. I could go on about him for a long time, but it was a real big middle finger to what nonfiction is supposed to be. You know, yeah. it was uh, insert yourself into the story and then go where it goes. But yeah, so I, I, this was rambling, but I have so no, many no, books no. that I love. Would you say then, because these books were such an influence and really interested in the, the talk of Hemingway and that now classic Hemingway writing of the importance of brevity and making, you know, really every word count. But also, I really like, you know, this idea of, of the, the, you know, the middle finger to the established idea of what this book should be or what this type of book should be. Would you say when you're writing, there's a slight desire to, you know, put the middle finger up to the establishment? A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. listen, I've been trashed mercilessly by the New York Times, by places <laughs> like that. And, and when I write books, actually in my head, I'm thinking Janet Maslin is going to hate this. <laughs> I do think that way. It's not that I'm setting out to sort of be revolutionary in my mm-hmm. writing. I believe that you can tell a true story in a fun, cinematic way. Yeah. I'm not a journalist. I'm not writing for a newspaper. And I think it's a very sort of, I don't think there's black and white in anything. And I don't think you can look at nonfiction and say, well, this is true. This isn't true. Yeah. This is nonfiction. This is fiction. I think there's a big gray area. And I think that what I do is a legitimate form of nonfiction. But I understand that a lot of old world critics don't get what I do. They don't like what I do. Uh, there's a big review coming out on the Antisocial Network, and it's it's actually a great review. I love it. But it's basically like, what is he doing here? <laughs> you know, Those <laughs> okay. are the questions I get a lot. Is, is, what, what is this exactly? Yeah. One of my favorite stories is when I wrote Bringing Down the House, which was a true story about a group of college kids who beat Vegas on the Boston Globe bestseller list. It was number two, and it had a star next to it. And I looked down at the bottom, and the star said, contain some fictional elements. And I was like, I've never seen that before. Well, the number one book on the same list was John Stewart's Fake History of America, (gasps) which contained zero true elements, right? So why does my book (laughs) put a star that says fictional elements when the number one nonfiction book? So my point is, is that nonfiction is a term we use, but it encompasses a lot of different styles of writing. Satire is nonfiction. Yeah. Comedy is nonfiction. Biography is nonfiction. Yeah. What I do, narrative nonfiction, it's not the same as documentary style nonfiction. Yeah. It's a little bit more cinematic. I definitely take the dialogue and put it into a setting that that is dramatic. But yes, I definitely think that I am thumbing my finger at authority with the way I've chosen to write nonfiction, the way I choose to research. And quite frankly, the stories that I choose often are a shot at the bow of establishment. Mm. I'm not Hunter S. Thompson because I'm more frightened of the world than I think he ever was. <laughs> I'm not ever going to be, you know, out with a shotgun fighting bear or, yeah. or drinking <laughs> to the point of, of, of suicide because that stuff scares me. 
but I'm, I wish I could be like him. Yeah. I and mean, I think I've chosen to sort of write nonfiction in that style. So absolutely. Every time I write a book, I know there are chapters where I can just see the reviewers, the New York Times rolling over as they, or <laughs> reaching for it to trash it as mercilessly as they could. You could and I, I frankly, I love those reviews. I love them. I love reading them. I yeah. love it when these established reviewers just don't know what to do with me. So yes, I do take great pleasure in that. You imagine with glee the sort of furious typing as they type out their review. Right, I can see it. I yeah, can you can see, see it in my it. head. Visualize How much it. I hate this. Right, right. I'm not Michael Lewis. We're very different authors. <laughs> yes. But that, uh, you know, also the wonderful thing about that is from the point of view of working in a bookshop and meeting, you know, everyday readers every day is all these different people coming in for very different styles of books that actually you find that these authors who are doing something that the establishment struggles to go, you know, where do we put this? What do we do with this? Are usually the type of books that also get new readers in, you know, people that may even say, oh, actually, you know, I've never really read much before, but this book really grabbed my attention. So I think it's really interesting to hear that from your side, because certainly, you know, as a on the ground bookseller, it's actually that we really do need that thinking of, of trying to do something different or something that feels at least true to you in terms of your style because actually that's what will bring in new readers into the fold i love hearing that it's funny the the new york times the first review i had the one of the first lines was ben mesrick writes for people who don't read (laughs) so i think that the point was you know i'm definitely writing for an audience when i started up most of my books were geared towards you know young men yeah and my competition was not other books it was the baseball game or the football game, okay, or, yeah. you know, my competition was other forms of entertainment because the people who I was aiming my books at were people who don't normally read yep. a lot of books. So if you look at bringing down the house, if you look at even the social network, I mean, it's about Facebook. It's about this crazy drama of a college kid creating a website. Yeah. It's not something that you would normally see in a book. Now you would, <laughs> but yeah. when it came out, these sort of CEO stories didn't exist. Uh, it was kind of groundbreaking in that respect. So Yes, I do definitely write, but which also, by the way, makes it sometimes difficult to sell. So, you know, getting out and and publicizing a book, say, about the GameStop drama is not as easy as one might think, because the people who are involved in it, you have to reach in many different ways. You know, these people on Reddit, the people who are taking on Wall Street are not your regular readers. Yeah. And so exactly to what you're saying, I need to get new people into the bookstore with every book. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting, people like you are the people who make my career, who get me readers, <laughs> people who are able to give my book to someone who yeah. may never have picked it up because they don't do that. There's a certain type of writer who writes for people who, who go to bookstores. Yes. And I'm usually writing people who've never been in a bookstore, right? The people I'm writing for have never walked into a bookstore. They walk into GameStop. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's very interesting. In Boston, I used to have a book signings. And I would always make sure to not schedule it when there was a Red Sox game going on. Because I knew that my audience wouldn't show up because they would be at the Red Sox game. And other authors don't have that issue because their readers don't go to the Red Sox. So it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah. To write books for people who don't read is, I mean, surely, you know, one of the biggest compliments. I don't know if they, in that review, if they meant it that way. I haven't read the review. I'm sure they didn't mean it at all. No, but I took it as a Yeah, it's a huge compliment. Well, sort of going off the back of that, then the next main question is the book that everyone should read, which is, of course, The Antisocial Network is your latest book. 
you know, let's say I'm Joe Stranger walking down the street and you've got a copy of your book. What are you saying to me to get me to take that book? Why should I be reading The Antisocial Network? Yeah, well, you should read The Antisocial Network because it's a real life David versus Goliath story where a group of regular people on their couches in the middle of a pandemic Mm. took down Wall Street. They took down a giant Wall Street hedge fund over the most absurd stock in the world, GameStop. And it was something that captured everyone's attention because it really was one moment where the little guy, at least for the moment, seemed to win. And there's so much excitement and drama and so many layers to it. This bubbling up anger that we all have towards Wall Street, Mm. but towards the institutions that have seemed to be treating us unfairly for so long are coming to a head. You know, we've seen it come to a head in politics. We've seen it come to a head in so many areas of our lives. The pandemic only made it worse. I mean, we all got screwed, right? (laughs) And it's, it's really fun to see a bunch of people figure out that, you know, if we all work together and we're, it doesn't matter if we're a bunch of idiots, we can win here. And that's what happened. A bunch of idiots won. And I say that lovingly, you know, Uh, a bunch of people at home on their couches trying to get tendies, they call them, chicken tenders, right? That's what it is when you make money on on the stock market. Trying to win their tendies really took down Wall Street. It was one of the most important stories, I think, in Wall Street history that we're going to see. It's going to happen again and again and again. The, The market is broken now. I think that the Reddit mob broke the stock market. And I think that it's something that is going to resonate. And, you know, we're doing a big movie about it because I really, really do think it's an origin story akin to the social network. So if you like the social network, I think you'll like the anti-social network. (laughs) I guess that's my pitch. But it was a blast to write. And I do think it's an important story. What I find interesting about this is, as you've sort of hinted at there, it's an ongoing thing. This is the beginning of something that will have a ripple effect for a very long time. And so... Do you feel this is sort of a great way to get almost ahead of that? Because, you know, even something, let's say, like Facebook, going back to that, you know, that's become such a huge thing with so many elements to it. You know, you get a sense that when these new stories come out about, you know, various different things, you know, Cambridge Analytica, things like that, that there's so much going on, people can't almost digest it. Whereas this is still the early days. So do you think reading this book, it's a good way of getting into that before this gets bigger and it becomes one of these things that is hard to keep an eye on. hundred percent. I really, really think this is a big origin moment that what happened with GameStop is going to resonate in such enormous structural ways. I think that this is the moment when we can clearly see that the price of things is no longer tethered to the fundamentals Mm. of those things. You can look at the crypto market like Doge. You can look at what's happening in NFTs. You can look at stocks and stonks, as we call them, the good, like GameStop, like AMC. GME, which is this ticker for GameStop, is no longer connected to GameStop. GME right. is a token that is worth what we all decide it's worth. And okay. this is a huge deal that the fundamentals no longer matter. You know, when you look at Wall Street, it works because we assume that everything is rational. We assume that there's supply and demand there's fundamentals and value. Mm. That's no longer the reality. The reality is it's no longer rational. It's emotional. Sentiment drives the price of things. And this is something that we are coming to terms with, but it's societal wide. It's not just Wall Street. It's in everything. The value of something is what we agree it's worth. And that's because of social media, everyone together has a voice now. 
a Wall Street institution cannot set the price of something. A fundamental report, you know, by a company cannot set the price of its stock. That price is going to be set by everyone via social media. So this is a big moment. You're going to see things where something like Dogecoin, which is completely ridiculous, <laughs> becomes worth trillions of dollars yeah. because a bunch of people, because Elon Musk tweeted about it, right? Yeah. Or you're going to see GameStop at $500 a share because a bunch of people on their couches decide it's $500 a share. And this is going to reverberate. It's going to make it very hard to invest rationally. Okay. It's going to make it very hard to decide what is the value of something. You know, NFTs is another example of this. You know, a picture on the internet, what is that worth? Is it worth nothing or is it worth $20 million? Yeah. You can't decide that. The mob decides that. And that's going to resonate. You know, it's going to resonate a lot. And do you think this is the start of the traditional gatekeepers of, you know, Wall Street or the financial markets and things like that? Do you think this is the first example of them realizing, you know, the mobs sort of talking back that this is a two way street, as it were? Again, I'm speaking from layman's terms here, but. Yeah. I don't think that Wall Street has taken it into full account yet. I okay. do think that they see what's happening, but they haven't realized the importance of this moment. Hmm. I do think that right now they feel like they can incorporate this into their models. They're hiring teams of people to scour the Reddit boards right. to look for okay. you know, meme stocks. They're hiring new analysts who have technical ability on social media. And that's how they're dealing with it right now. But I don't think the greater importance of this has been taken into account. The idea that you can't really tell what something is worth anymore because that's variable. It's not worth anything or it's worth an enormous yeah. amount and it's not up for anybody else to say. So I don't think, you know, I don't know that there's a way to fix this necessarily, but there's this move to make more and more people part of the system. They want more and more retail traders. They want to make it easier and easier. And that's just going to make this bigger and bigger um, because the retail traders, when you start to knock down the barriers to investing, which is what's happening here, you start getting much less educated investors. Right. And then there's a mob of people who are going to move entirely via emotion. Yeah. So for better or worse, we're moving into the democratization of finance, okay. which is going to lead to complete chaos. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. Chaos is sometimes good. Yeah, yeah. But certainly the gatekeepers are no longer going to be in control. We're at a frontier situation. You know, we're in unexplored territory. And if you're going to at least be able to know your way around slightly, you know, the antisocial network, is this a good book to kind of understand what yeah, the new should... rules of this world might be? I 100% believe that people should read this book yeah. before investing in the market. Uh, you should read it just to understand what the heck is about to yeah. happen. I think the Antisocial Network, I see it as an origin story. I see it as, you know, look, we saw the social network and then 10 years later, look at Facebook. Yeah. It's exactly what you would expect from Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> yes. And I think that if you read you know, the Antisocial Network a decade from now, you'll understand why the market is so crazy. <laughs> That's definitely how I see it, for sure. Absolutely. Well, I think that really brings us to the to the end of our discussion. Thank you so much for joining us, Ben, and for telling us about your latest release. Well, I appreciate doing this. Thank you so much. And people like you and, and, and bookstores, they're my life, <laughs> not just my lifeblood, but I spent my life in bookstores. You know, that was what I would do every Friday afternoon through most of my life is go to a bookstore. Um, and so I appreciate, you know, what you do and getting the books into people's hands. I mean, that's that's where it all starts. There's nothing more important, I think, in the world than people reading books. I speak to young people all the time. And my point is, the world is made better the more people read. That's just a true thing across the board. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Ben. Thank you. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Most Books website. 
This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.